Let's open the Word of God, please, to First Peter chapter chapter two. Yeah. And boy, it's it's wonderful to be back. I, this is very subjective, and to uh, divorce the pastor from this, but there's something special about TBF, man. I'm telling you, we're blessed to to be part of this group of people, and God's been very faithful to us. I, one of my best Christmas presents this year was finding out a couple of months ago from from Michael that the Birches were moving back, and I was not given clearance to share that. So that was very difficult for me to keep under my hat, but we're really thankful uh, to have Amanda and Michael and Mavis back. And uh, hold your applause, but thank you, Lord, for answering my prayers on that. I'm very thankful Ken uh, is here in one piece. You know, he was in a car wreck caused primarily by foggy conditions on Christmas Eve, so we're th- very thankful he's okay. Could have been much, much, much worse, and I'm glad you guys are all here. I want to read uh, a portion from 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 5, and it says this, therefore, let's stop right there, hey Trey, every time you see it, therefore, you've got to ask, what's it there for? And it's going back to something, Gibson. So what's going back to is chapter 1, verse 22. Since you, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have been born again, given new spiritual life, not of physical, biological seed, which is perishable, but a seed which is imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God for all flesh, all humanity, all human life is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass, and the grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you about the Lord Jesus Christ and where you received your gift of eternal life. Therefore, not in order to be saved or even to stay saved, but because you are saved by the grace of God through faith alone, Now, as believers, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. In church circles is what the context is talking about, but just generally at work, in your family, etc. And for every negative in the Bible is always a corresponding positive, usually in the same context. So don't do all that stuff in verse 1. Do this in verse 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word of God, that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. And then most English translations, verse 3, have the word if. And usually in English, if means like if OSU plays well in the Alamo Bowl, they may totally dominate Colorado, the formerly number 10 uh, team in the country. Who was playing defense for us that night? Anyway, that was awesome. Uh, They finally listened to the coach. But uh, if in English usually is... uh, uh, contingency that may or may not happen. But in Greek, you change the spelling a little bit, and this is called a third-class conditional statement. It means if, and it's true, we would render it since. Look at that. Since, verse 3, you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. The, the glorious grace truth about Christian living is we do it not because we have to, but because we get to. We do it not to be saved, but because we are saved. We do it not as the cause of salvation, but as the effect or the fruit of salvation. Okay, now jump over to chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Look at verse 13. Now this is good stuff to know as we enter an uncertain new year. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? If maintaining your testimony is the most important thing in your life, you can't, you're in a no-lose situation no matter what happens. But even if they should, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Somebody noticed you're different than the culture. So don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. But here's the corresponding positive. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Get Him in the center of your pie chart of your uh, priority levels. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who's open. People of peace, we call that in China. To everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence 
and live a consistent lifestyle while you're telling them how about Jesus, keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you're slandered, we're backward, we hate people, we're not uh, the kind of people that make uh, contributive, uh, contribute positive things to our culture. So in the things like that in which believers are often slandered, those who revile uh, your uh, good pay, who who revile you despite your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. But watch this. This is a verse that uh, Joel Olstein will not tell you about. For it is better if God should will it so, which means sometimes it will happen, that you suffer for doing what's right rather than for doing what's wrong and avoid suffering is the point. For Christ, think about the ultimate Example of unfair suffering. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Once for all. It is finished. No more atonement necessary. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring Olga Pollock and Michael Birch and Savannah Bowers and Brad McCoy to God having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Okay, today what we want to do is... Announced the good, the, the, the new year. You probably heard about it. It's a new year now. And what we're kind of doing is Xing out 2016. And I thought since we're Xing out the old year, I'd do a short but special message on what I would call Xed out gospels or gospels you haven't heard about that some would say Christians Xed out because we don't want you to know what they say about Jesus. And then just say a word about Xmas and how we should think about Xmas. And in fact, it's uh, maybe not as malicious as you might think. Now, here's the plan, Lord willing, for January. Uh, we're going to look at Xed Out Gospels and Xmas this morning. We're going to look at the AIM. That's an acronym. What does AIM stand for? Absolute Irreducible Minimum that you need to know about Islam, including ISIS and ISIL. You know the difference between ISIS and ISIL? We'll talk about it, uh, Lord willing, next week. On the 15th, Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. Remember that? Uh, give me liberty and not the death-dealing spiritual consequences of license on one extreme or legalism on the other. We're going to talk about Christian liberty. Incredible stuff in Scripture, Romans 14 and 15. On the 22nd, I'm going to say, get out from under your couch. Go ahead and open the door. You don't have to hide from Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. You need to know where they're coming from and how you can contribute to help see that Jesus is all they need for salvation. And then uh, the cap off January, we'll look at the pogs of TBF version 28.0. We're going to keep doing it till we do it right. Now, the big question is, if that's January, what do we do in February? Well, Lord willing, we're going to start a, a study on the book of First Peter which is a wonderful book, uh, anytime, I think especially right now, living for our Lord as exiles, as part-timers on earth, actively serving and actively awaiting eternity with our Savior. But uh, let's pray first for our teachability today as we do a special message, topical message, and uh, we want to pray also for our troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters, and uh, uh, David Tripling, lead us in, in prayer. Would you please, in that direction? <clears throat> Amen. Thank you, David. Uh, I know Christmas is over, but, uh, you know, we were doing that series of corny Christmas jokes, so i got a couple of cartoons to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking here. Uh, two ladies at the gym about this time of year, and uh, the one says, I tend to gain weight around the holidays, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, National Mitten Day, Elvis Week, Miller Fillmore's birthday, those kind of holidays. Speaking of Elvis, uh, Santa Claus has uh, been talking to an employment agency, and he uh, didn't get what he wanted. He said, hello, employment agency, there's been a mistake. I asked for 100 elves. What he got was 100 elvi, which is the plural of Elvis. And then finally... Hold your applause. Uh, this is a supervisor at work. If you say Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, or Season's Greetings, it's going to offend somebody. That's why we're advising our people here at Halliburton to say Bah Humbug. Right. 
Yeah, let's think about New Year, New Gospels, and then Christmas and Xmas. And let's start here. Um, what's the big deal? What's going on? Um, well, there are some Gospels you probably haven't heard about. They're not going to be in your table of contents as you look at uh, your New Testament. And uh, sometimes the Discovery Channel or the History Channel kind of give you uh, one spin on why that is true. Uh, and I want to try to give you kind of the other side. This is going to be equal time tonight and just uh, this morning in just a few moments. But uh, the, probably the two most publicized lost Gospels that aren't in your New Testament, but some people insinuate they probably should be, are called the Gospel of Thomas, which wasn't written by Thomas, and the Gospel of Judas. But Thomas was one of the disciples, and Judas was one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot. And those are the ones that get a lot of publicity. And you're going to see Time Magazine and Newsweek and National Geographic uh, emphasize that once a year, usually around Easter time, they have to rain on our parade and say, hey, you know, you Christians have got just four many gospels and somebody picked and chose, uh, kind of, you know, uh, kind of, uh, what should we say? They kind of, uh, stack the deck. But what you need to know, I think, is, uh, you'll hear the term Nag Hammadi. Nag Hammadi is in Upper Egypt, which is actually south, uh, elevation-wise, it's Upper Egypt. Uh, and back in 1945, uh, I, you know, I wasn't alive then, but I've read uh, in all the, the journals that that's when they found this big cache of ancient Coptic uh, manuscripts. Um, and uh, they include books like the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of James, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel to the Hebrews, uh, they include something called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. I was going to read some of that to you today, and I, um, I will sometime, but it's just filled with all kinds of cartoonish ideas of things Jesus might have done as a kid. Uh, and the one we want to focus on briefly among this cache of documents found in Upper Egypt uh, 50 years ago or so is called the Gospel of Thomas. And people call these the lost gospels or the new gospels, even though they were never really lost and they're not new. But they are a lot newer than the real gospels. But here's, I think, what you want to take home. Uh, the so-called lost new gospels weren't lost. We had citations of them from early church teachers that said, beware. This is like Jehovah's Witness or Mormon documents. These are bad counterfeits. They weren't written in the first century when the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John Gospels were written. They were written in the, not written until the middle of the second century or into the third, fourth, fifth century. Uh, so they're too late and they're lawless because they don't complement the true Gospels. They actually contradict them with a Gnostic, a particular theological agenda, right? So here's the claim made by a few radical skeptics about these Gospels. See, what happened was, there was uh, great diversity, all kinds of different versions of Christianity that came out of the Christ event from the first day. And the four that were picked to be in your New Testament really weren't considered all that important until 325 A.D. when there was a big theological council called the Council of Nicaea. And the idea is, at that point, the new Gospels, Gospels like Judas and Thomas, were kicked out by a certain cabal of conspiratorial thinkers that didn't like what all the other strands of Christianity were saying and tried to get an exclusive uh, hold on the franchise. So you have uh, all this horrible conspiratorial motivation being thrown out there as the reason you've only got four Gospels and not 25 Gospels, including Judas and Thomas. That's not what happened. The less sensational but factually correct reality of the history is these documents... Uh, were noted as soon as they were written in the middle of the second century with wet ink on them that clearly minimized or denied the deity of Christ and minimized or distorted the meaning of the cross. Uh, and the early church said, hold it. We've already got four gospels by apostles or those very close to apostles that we've been using for almost a hundred years who actually knew Jesus. And now in 150 or 160 or 180, you're giving us new, ink-still-wet documents that sound like cartoons, sound like a, a Jehovah's Witness tract, or in context, a, a gnomic uh, false tract. We're not going to buy that. Um, 
all of these so-called new gospels are just bad counterfeits. And this is a subjective thing, I know, but uh, I'm going to read a little bit from both of those in a minute, uh, Thomas and, and Judas, and you, you'll go, that doesn't sound like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not even just the quality of the writing isn't as good, much less the fact they're pushing an agenda. Plus, all these things are very short as well, which is weird that people almost, some of the scholars say, we shouldn't call them Gospels because just on the links, they don't compare to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that's a little bit picky. Uh, it is true the new Gospels are much newer than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which were written probably no later than 70 A.D., and there's good reasons for believing that, and I'll go over that at some point. Because um, they're written in 150, 170, 180. They're 100 years way too late, uh, well after the events of uh, the Christ event and, and, and century after or more after the four biblical Gospels have been circulated long enough for some bad guys to read them and try to come up with a counterfeit to countermand them, as it were. Uh, the idea that the early church councils uh, created the New Testament is like saying that Isaac Newton created gravity. You've heard about Isaac Newton, right? The story is he's laying under an apple tree, which is always dangerous, especially in England, you know. But he's laying in one spring, he's laying under an apple tree, and an apple falls down, hits him on the head. Now, this this may be like the cherry tree thing. Washington didn't do it, but if he had chopped down a, Christ, a Christmas tree or a cherry tree, I'm sure he would have owned up about it. But uh, Newton said, wow, you know, that apple fell down. I wonder why they never fall sideways or up. And he started to describe it. And he figured out gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared. It's crazy, you know, nuts. But uh, he didn't create gravity, right? Do you, fall? you look like you're not following this. Isaac Newton did not create gravity, Steve. <laughs> he just described it, right? And kind of explained some of it, right? And the idea that the church, the Council of Nicaea in 325, suddenly created a false apostolic Christianity that far into the history of the church is insane. I mean, the reality is the early church councils didn't create the New Testament. What happened was the truths of the New Testament created the church. We're talking about Christ, of course, at the center of that. So that's just a category mistake. Now, let's think about it, too. Historically, why were there no big church meetings until... 325 A.D. Why didn't the Christians in the second and third centuries have these big theological meetings? You know why? Got a gun to our head for the first couple hundred years. Why? You couldn't get life insurance if you're a Christian. The Roman Empire was, you know, we were all public enemies number one. But in 313, the Edict of Milan was issued by Emperor Constantine. He'd become a Christian. He didn't make Christianity the state religion then. He just made it an acceptable legal religion. It wasn't until 380 when Theodosius made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire, which was a big problem. and actually caused more problems than it solved. But in 313, suddenly we're legal. Twelve years later, they're having this big meeting, primarily to deal with a heretic called Arius, who was denying the deity of Christ and influencing some Christians. So the leaders said, let's get together and look at the New Testament books, including Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and hammer out exactly what they're saying about Jesus so we can teach it uh, uh, specifically and biblically, just like Isaac Newton saw the apple fall. And let me do a thousand of those and measure it and figure out how it works and describe it. So the idea that the uh, the early councils, especially Nicaea, which was probably the purest of all the early councils, was uh, a cabal of conspirators trying to ruin the thing or change it. It's just insane. Uh, Gospel of Thomas, let's talk about it. Gospel of Thomas is really a, an interesting document because it's a listing of 114 isolated sayings by Jesus, of supposed sayings by Jesus, with no context. Now, that's a big difference between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because everything Jesus says in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John is in some kind of a context. You know, he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to the Pharisees, he's talking about this, talking about this, at a wedding feast, whatever it is. There's no context. It's just Jesus said this, Jesus said that. It's a little, little bit more subtle than that. But that's kind of odd. Uh, they're all listed with no context. A few paraphrase sayings that will sound familiar to you from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but most of them, or many of them at least, just are Jesus as a Gnostic saying, the problem is the universe was created by a lower God, 
and everything that's physical is evil. And as soon as you figure that out, you've got a chance to make some spiritual progress as long as you're not Jewish or a female. Gnosticism was virulently anti-female and pretty anti-Semitic. And you read those kind of things in Jesus' mouth in Thomas, and you're going, Jesus didn't say stuff like that. He wouldn't say stuff like that. Okay. So, again, this document doesn't complement Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It contradicts them. And it wasn't written by Thomas or anybody associated with the apostles. It just suddenly shows up in the middle of the second century. And as soon as it does, alarm bells go off in the church all over. They didn't wait till 325 to say this was bad stuff. As soon as it got distributed, they said, this is not from us. This is not from the apostles. Let me read some of this. Uh, the book begins, these are the secret sayings. Secret sayings. Narcissism is all about this. Uh, this uh, eclectic group coming together from different cultures. As long as you're not Jewish. They didn't like Jews for some reason so much. And uh, getting together and having secret information and the way to kind of get in tap with real spirituality is to know all these secret words and these special ceremonies that nobody but the Gnostics know about. These are the secret sayings which the living Jesus spoke in which Judas, who's called Thomas, Judas, uh, not Judas Iscariot here, but Thomas, the twin, wrote down. And he said, this is Jesus, whoever discerns the interpretation of these sayings will not experience death. And Jesus said, let him who seeks continue seeking until he finds. When he finds, he'll become troubled. When he becomes troubled, he'll be astonished, and he will rule over all. Get all these, some of it reads almost like fortune cookie kind of stuff, but when you peel the layers, it's all to promote a Gnostic, non-biblical agenda. Jesus said to his disciples, watch this. This may sound like something he read about in uh, Matthew. Compare me to someone and tell me whom I am like. Simon Peter said to him, you're like a righteous angel. That's a big demotion to the Son of God, the creator of the universe, second person of the Trinity. Matthew said to him, you're like a wise philosopher. Thomas said to him, Master, my mouth is holy and capable of saying who you are like. Jesus said, well, one thing's for sure, I'm not your master. So just know that. Uh, Jesus said, if you become my disciples and listen to my words, these stones will minister to you. Hmm. Okay, look at that big one at the top. Compare me to someone and tell me who I'm like. That sounds like a bad counterfeit Gnostic spin of what happens when Jesus calls the disciples to a retreat near Caesarea Philippi, north of Israel, and the uh, religious leaders of Judaism have decided to explain Jesus away by saying he's a satanically possessed false prophet, and that has hurt attendance at the rallies a little bit. Uh, so I've often said, I don't think the average Jew thought Jesus was a satanically possessed false prophet. I think a lot of them thought, we thought he was Messiah maybe, but he can't be the Messiah because our leaders wouldn't miss it that badly. He may not be as bad as they say he is, but he's not the Messiah. So remember that situation? So he pulls them aside out of the crush of ministry to his disciples, and he says, okay, who do men say that I am? What is the Gallup poll saying about me now that, the leaders have said, I'm a demonically, satanically possessed false prophet. And what are some of the answers? And Peter answers last in the actual event. Remember, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, which is a dumb, that's a, that was a dumb answer, meaning resurrected. But they were contemporaries, so that's not possible. Some say you're a prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah or something like that. And then uh, Jesus says, question two, what does it got? Not what the Gallup poll says. What do people say now? He says, who do you say that I am now? And Peter hits a grand slam home run. Remember what he said? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I know they're saying you're satanically possessed, but that's because they've got to explain away your miracles, which only the Messiah could do. So this is a bad attempt to kind of spin that and to diminish what the Gospels, who the Gospel of Thomas is saying about Jesus. Whoever he is... Uh, he's not their master. And Jesus doesn't deny he is, you know, you call me master and Lord and you're right. You know, he says other places in the real Gospels. His disciples said to him, when will the kingdom come? Jesus said it will not come by waiting for it, uh, even though we are told to wait for it in the New Testament. It will not be a matter of saying here it is or there it is. It's not going to be visible like Jesus says in Matthew 24. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth and men do not see it. 
It's a Gnostic thing only we know about. You've got to become one of us to find out what it really means. And then at the very end of uh, the Gospel according to Thomas, this is weird because some of the... Uh, Elaine Peggles, who used to teach at Yale, is one of the three scholars that really pushed this. And she's obviously a big-time feminist. And yet, when you find out that the Gnostics really kind of hated women, misogynists, that's a term that's done around a lot now, right? I can't spell it, but I know what it means. But it's hard to spell. But uh, Simon Peter said to them, tell Mary, uh, said to his other disciples, tell Mary to leave us, for women are not worthy of life. I mean, they're like 50% of the population. That's not good. Not fair. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male. Oh, my goodness. You know, So she can go to either bathroom she wants to run. So that she, too, may become a living spirit resembling you males. Now, you know, at first flush, I'd say, I'm not sure what he means by that in this context. I can think of at least two possible Gnostic interpretations. But for right now, I'd say, how does that square with something like Galatians 3.28, which says, in Christ there is no male or female. There is no Jew or Greek. There's no rich or poor, slave or free. Who cares? You know, we're all ontologically equals. You get that kind of stuff, and you, yet you get radical scholars who like this book and want it elevated up to the level of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there's no comparison. Um, Gnosticism in a nutshell, not, gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge, so it's kind of Gnosticism, the form of that. All matter is evil. Anything that's physical is evil. Only the non-material, uh, the spirit realm is really good. What do we say about that? Uh, have you read Genesis recently? Did God create the heavens and the earth? And what does he say about it? It's good. It's fine. It's not inherently evil. Now, we've got a flawed sin nature now built in us because of original sin, but that's a whole different thing. There's an unknowable God. The ultimate God is totally spirit. Not really, it doesn't really interact in a personal level with anything. But he gave rise to different uh, emanations called the aeons. And one of those aeons, which is part spiritual and part material and part good and part bad, is the God of the Old Testament who created our universe. Salvation that is existing as a spirit being after earth comes through secret knowledge that only the Gnostics can give you through books like the Gospel according to Thomas. And Jesus was not a unique Savior in any way, but just one of many enlightened teachers, okay? That's the bottom line on Thomas. Let's talk about the Gospel of Judas, which has gotten a lot of publicity the last uh, ten years or so for some specific reasons. Uh, a title from the Boston Globe, and this was back ten years ago, but a new Judas emerges from rediscovered gospel. Now, if you're just an average Baptist or an average Buddhist, and you hear about a new gospel, you don't know there's a bunch of competing gospels that show up in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries that were banned and were uh, seen as counterfeits as soon as they were written. You go, oh, there's a new gospel. You know, I don't read the Bible that much, but maybe I'll read this one. It's going to give us a new conception of who Judas was. Uh, the gospel of Judas uh, became really kind of publicized a lot because we actually found a fairly, not, not me personally when I say we, I really mean... Uh, you know, David and uh, Steve, they were the ones. But uh, in 1978, 1940, not 1945, so this isn't Nag uh a 3rd century, the 200s A.D. copy of this gospel, which we'd already knew about from the early church fathers telling us about it, uh, was found and obtained by the National Geographic Society. They bought it. Okay, uh, The OM, the original manuscript of this gospel, this pseudo-gospel, would have been written in about 180 A.D. It's Gnostic. It's another counterfeit. And we've known about it since 180 because Irenaeus uh, you know, goes ape over it in describing how, how bad it is. Uh, there is probably a profit motive over a prophetic message, though, in publicizing it so much. And, you know, the National Geographic Society uh, produces some wonderful materials you know, uh, on nature and, and tribes that are isolated that go out there and live with them and take pictures and stuff. And, and we've all seen that. And that's all, that's all good and well for the most part. But the National Geographic Society buys this document. And from that point on, they begin pushing it as, quote, an important and reliable witness of the life and ministry of Jesus. And that's, that, that quote is so weird. That's a direct quote from one of their, uh, materials they produced. They produced a, 
a special issue of the magazine, a TV special, and a DVD you can have in addition to the TV special. And the weird thing is they have Elaine Pagels again uh, interviewed there throughout that uh, documentary. And I just read, reread her book on the uh, uh, Gospel of Judas, and she says, this thing gives us a lot of insight in one of the competing uh, Christologies in the, in the early church. But, of course, there is no reliable historical data about Judas or Jesus in the Gospel of Judas. This is what Elaine Pagel says. Okay, She's an expert until she said that, right? Gospel of Judas is late, uh, 171 80 probably was when it was written in that period. Uh, not apostolic, not consistent New Testament. And it tells a story where Judas is the only one who really bought into Jesus' Gnostic agenda, and the other guys were too dense to get it. And so because Jesus had to be released from his physical body because physical's evil, he talked Judas into betraying him and then taking on the reins of what Jesus wanted his teachings to be. So it's just describing uh, an attempt uh, by Judas to establish the church because Jesus told him what really uh, the deal was, and of course, which never actually happened at all. Here's some quotes from the gospel according to Judas. This is the first statement. The secret, it's always about secrets. People love secrets, you know. If I can tell you, I'm going to tell you what 666 really means. You know, nobody else knows it. And I do know what it means, but some people also know what it means, so I'm not the only one. But uh, the se- they love secrets. People love secrets. They love conspiracies, you know. They want to be the only ones that know, you know, why the apples fall down or whatever. Uh, not that, it's something else. It's, you know, why Obama did this or why Trump said that. The secret account of the revelation that Jesus spoke in conversation with Judas Iscariot. He's the one inside guy. He's the only one who gets the deal, Steve. Uh, Jesus said to them, do you really think you know me? Truly I say to you, no one from among your people will ever know me. Unless you totally divest yourself of your Jewish faith and your Jewishness, you've got no shot. This is a very anti-Semitic document. So just that should tell you something. Read Genesis 12, 15, 17 sometime. Watch this. They talk about spiritual realms that don't exist. Judas said to him, to Jesus, I know who you are and which place you come from. You come from the realm of Barbello. Now, you know, I've never, uh, I haven't been to a lot of bars, but I know uh, if I read that to my uh, world religion class, and I didn't give that quote for world religion class this year, but they say, oh, yeah, that's a bar in Comanche, Barbello, you know, or something like that. It sounds like maybe a work fitness thing, you know, they might call it Barbello with the, with the bars, you know. But they're talking about some, there's 12 levels of spirituality in the spirit world, and it goes into great detail about that. Of course, it's, it's craziness there. But the bottom line is, when you hear about the lost gospels, and especially when you find out that somebody in four, in the fourth century didn't want you to read this stuff, it's kind of like, you know, it's the uh, forbidden fruit thing. I gotta read it. I gotta find out what Jesus is really all about. You can find out who Jesus really is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's nothing that compares to that. To compare these documents, we're looking at two, Thomas and Judas, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is like comparing a real apple to a plastic apple. I mean, it's just not even the same thing. You know, they might look similar from a distance, but if you look at them closely, you're not going to see it. Now, watch this. The lost Gospels, you know, they were dug up in 45 or 78. You might say were lost from the time they were written until then. Not really. Because we have early church fathers in the second century, Irenaeus, uh, uh, Eusebius, uh, uh, Polycarp, people like that, that are warning about the Gnostic character of these counterfeit gospels. Uh, they shouldn't be part of church services because they contradict what we know about Jesus from the apostles and their their documents. And if anything, I think discovering these documents in recent times from a historical perspective, validates the validity of what the early church said about them because when you finally dig it up and read Thomas or Judas, it's exactly what Irenaeus was warning about. Exactly. So uh, there's no reason to take these real seriously. There are a few scholars, though, that have kind of published a lot of stuff about them, and this is why you get famous in the scholastic area. You find some controversial thing and have a, an opinion nobody else holds, and then, then you're special. And Elaine Pagels there is on the left. John Dominic Crossan is in the middle, and then Bart Ehrman's on the far right. And you'll see these three quite often in those uh, Discovery or History Channel specials that sometimes try to kind of uh, uh, take out the uh, the essence of true Christianity. Uh, occasionally, those channels will give some equal time to other scholars, 
But we've got people just as smart as those three, with all the same training, with all the same data, that say no, the kind of stuff I've tried to summarize just now. Uh, some of the names you might want to be familiar with, Daryl Bach, who teaches at Dallas Seminary, who I know personally, don't hold that against him, but uh, yeah, he's considered to be one of the, the uh, premier Jesus, Jesus scholars, they call him, if you deal with all this gospel material. Ben Witherington III is also well-known. N.T. Wright from England is well-known, and Craig Evans is a Canadian. So we got a Canadian, a Brit, and two Americans that are saying the same things as uh, two Americans and an Irishman. So we got four against their three, so we win, right? It doesn't work like that, but I'm just saying, whatever you're seeing uh, from one extreme has been interacted with. But it's not like evangelicals don't know about these things and we're just in the dark. We know about these things, and we hold the same view of these documents the early church did. I mean, there's no way this is on the par with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. No, they're just way too late. They're Gnostic. They're, they're just contradicting what we already know about Jesus. It just can't be true. Okay. Uh, the worst part of the lost gospels is they minimize or deny the gospel. And that's what I'd like to leave you with before I say just a word about Xmas. The worst thing about the lost gospels is ironically they minimize or deny the gospel. What's the gospel? And you should, you should know this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Paul defines the gospel. He basically says at the end of this long letter, uh, let me remind you here at the end of this letter what is the most important thing that we believe and we preach. And it's what I believed and it's what you believed when I first came to Corinth. It's the whole basis of the church. It's the gospel, the fact that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. He was buried, which proved he was really dead. And he rose again from the dead on the third day. Uh, according to the scriptures, and he was seen by multiple people, starting with women and other people that the Gnostics don't like and repudiate kind of thing. So the core of the gospel is the S-A-S-L-B-S-R. And uh, I've been convicted about repenting about the overuse of acronyms, and then I laid down and the feeling went away. So I'm still going to use acronyms. But um, these are kind of technical terms for us, but I'm always going to explain them because we might have somebody who forgot or hasn't noticed the first time. But SAS stands for Substitutionary Atoning Sacrifice. What happened on the cross? I mean, the Romans crucified hundreds of thousands of people in the first century, but only one was paying the sin debt of the world, and only one rose from the dead three days after he was crucified, and that would be Jesus. So SAS is talking about the work of Christ on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. The debt we owed to God the Father that couldn't be whitewashed was paid for in our place, which is why he says it's finished at the end of the atoning work, which means paid in full. SAS, Substitutionary Atoning Sacrifice. LBSR, what does that stand for? Any brave soul out there? Literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection. Yeah, this is not just resuscitation where like Lazarus was resuscitated, but he would have died again. This is literal. If you had a time machine went back, it really happened. It wasn't just a spiritual thing. It was bodily. It involved his body. What does that do to Gnostics? Gnostics don't believe the body is good. It's inherently evil. So they don't believe in a bodily resurrection. They don't want it. They don't need it. They deny a bodily resurrection. Supernatural, what does that mean? Richard Dawkins, we know we can't reproduce this in the laboratory for you. It was special. You know, it only happened once. We Human beings can't do this. Uh, resurrection. Now, let's talk about Christmas and Xmas real quick. And it may not be as malicious as you think, and yet it's still something that should concern us as Christians, right? Um, you know, uh, you see this kind of stuff. Uh, I remember vaguely the first time I saw Xmas as a little kid, and I asked my mom, what, what is that? And she said, it's just an abbreviation for Christmas. You know, they didn't have enough space. You know, they had run out of room. But in fact... Uh, you know, there's a thing called the New Atheists. For the last 15 years, there's been this group called the New Atheists. And it's kind of like the Lost Gospels. There's nothing they're saying that's new. It's their tone that's completely new. I mean, everything that uh, Richard Dawkins or Patrick or uh, Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris and these people are saying wasn't said better by Bertrand Russell in the 20th century. And the church responded to all this stuff. The difference is Bertrand Russell in the 20th century would say, hey, I'm an atheist and you're Christian and you're wrong, but you know I can respect your uh, opinions, and I think a lot, of the the a lot of the ethics taught by Christianity has been helpful to our culture. The new atheists don't see it that way. The God delusion was 
Dawkins' premier book, he's saying believing in God is a delusion. It's a mental illness. And the reason our society, you know why Western society is so messed up? It's because of Christian moral influence. You know, you know why that there's so much crime in the world? Because of policemen. You know why there's so much ignorance in the world? Teachers. Right? You know why there's so much illness in the world? Because there's so many doctors. That's the same kind of reasoning. Doctors don't, unless they're coughing and they've got a disease, you know, they don't cause illness. They try to fix it. Teachers, are there bad teachers? Yeah, they're bad teachers. They're bad lawyers, bad preachers. They're bad retired people. Nobody in the room. Uh, I mean, five or ten percent, of course, they're terrible. But, uh, they're blaming, you know, putting the cart before the horse there. But, uh, the new atheists put out stuff like this at atheist.org. Um, and they're using Xmas not just as an abbreviation for Christmas, but they're literally trying to put something in the place of Christ because it's so odious to them to even see it. And we were kind of moving as a culture where we were kind of embracing, okay, I guess we can't say Merry Christmas because it might hurt somebody's feelings. You know, the snowflakes might melt, you know. And I think we've actually, I think that was a bridge too far. I think after thinking about it for a couple of years, the average American said, no, I'm going to say Christmas whether, you know, uh, who, uh, Madonna likes it or not. I mean, why are we letting these people decide what we can do? But uh, this is a, a slide from atheist.org. Uh, celebrate the true meaning of Xmas. Now, you guys know, according to me, the true meaning of Christmas is the babe in the manger was and is the God-man Savior. Remember that, right? That's not what it means to them. Uh, Christmas is charity, stockings, gift, fun, Chinese food, which, yeah, if you live in China, I guess, you know, you see that one? Yeah. And they call themselves the party of science. I mean, come on now. Uh, what's Chinese food got to do with China? Uh, with uh, Christmas? If you're Chinese, I guess. Hot chocolate, friends, food, family, parties, movies, rockets. Really? I mean, okay, I guess they do a special Christmas show and stuff. But why not put Donnie and Marie? Uh, they used to do a Christmas show, but yeah, they're, that's, they're not they're not inclusive, you know. Um, now this is another one. This is a slide from their website. Who needs Christ? And it shows the X Xing him out. See? During Christmas. Nobody. And then this is, I think this is grammatically incorrect, but this is from the site. I am atheist, but I love presents. Merry Xmas. Okay? So the claim about Xmas, uh, by some, including a lot of sincere Christians, is by definition, Xmas is a blatant attempt to X out Christ from Christmas. And I just showed you some examples where that would be true. That's a blatant attempt to exit out. That's a blatant, you can't deny that, okay? So I, I get what they're saying. But the less sensational but factually correct reality is a little bit more subtle. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Historically, this is our slide we use a lot, and I, lo I love this slide. You know, Lord Jesus Christ, but let's focus on, on this title Christ, which means Savior, as you know, the anointed one, right? Uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, there's Mashiach, right? But when you write Christ in Greek, what's the first letter? Yeah, that's right, Ki or Kai. It looks like an X to our eyes, but that's just the CH sound in Greek. And so, yeah, you see that? So, historically, uh, for a thousand years, the Greek letter Chi, which looks like an X to us, was used as an abbreviation for Christ, not in biblical manuscripts, but in a lot of devotional uh, material that we've dug up. And they didn't really apply it to Christmas, but it was just an abbreviation for Christ, because it's the first letter in the word for Christ. Uh, and we see this, this was a, a website that is just trying to propound the idea that Xmas is okay. And I'm going to say, it's okay Technically, but it's probably not okay practically. But they say keep key, which looks like that, in chemus, because early Christians used Greek abbreviations. So now you know more than the average person. But have you ever seen this? I know Anthony has. Remember that, Anthony? Yeah, it's called the Cairo, because that's the X. But it's not really an X, is it? It's a key or a chi. And that looks like a P, but it's actually a Rho, which is the R sound. And that's the second letter in the title Christ, right? See the X there? See the key? See, that looks like a P, doesn't it? But that's actually a row. It's an R sound in Greek. So the early church, and you'll see this in Presbyterian churches today and some of the other churches uh, that have that historical 
memory, which is a good thing, I think. But that's called the Kairos. It's a, it's a uh, uh, early abbreviation for Christ and Christianity. Now, to our eyes, it might look like somebody trying to X out the letter P. And that would be a horrible translation or interpretation. That's not happening there. But uh, what's, what's happening there is it's a very legitimate thing. But here's the thing I want to leave you with today. You know what? Um, symbols only have the meaning that is the authorial intent behind them. Okay? So if somebody in the 4th century is, doesn't have much of a papyri space to write down some devotional thoughts, they're probably going to use abbreviations like key or it looks like an X for Christ with no intent, no malicious intent, right? But if you've got atheist.org Xing out Christ, that's malicious intent. I've used this example, but is a lion a good symbol or a bad symbol in the Bible? Correct answer is you don't know yet because it can be good, can be bad. Jesus is the lion according to the tribe of Judah, but Satan, like a roaring lion, is trying to devour us, you know? So the symbol is neutral. It depends on the context and the intent. And uh, so I, if I were you, it's kind of like uh, Cooper's not in the room, right? Cooper found out in the last year Santa Claus isn't real, okay? Uh, he kind of kept, they go to like to the one mall in Tulsa, a different mall in Tulsa, within 30 minutes of each other, and you got two different Santa Claus there, and they look different, and he kind of figured out, What's going on here? So they just explained it to him. But they kind of said, don't tell your friends at school, okay? He's not real, but don't tell your friends at school. They don't all know this, you know? So I would say, Gibson, what are you going to do with this truth? Uh, I would say, you know better than to think that X or chemus is inherently evil. It could intend to mean abbreviation for Christ. So it can be okay. But when it's being used by the new atheist to X out Christ explicitly, it's not okay. And so I wouldn't use it at all. It's funny because at the seminary, I noticed some of the upperclassmen would put X-I-A-N for Christian in their notes. And uh, they also use up the C for Psalms. That's a whole different thing. But you start using these little Greek letters that sum things up in your notes so you can take notes fast enough. And I'd see that. First couple of times I saw that they were saying Xmas there. What's the deal? And I realized later it meant something else. So you know that X can be a legitimate abbreviation for Christ. But the average American... Christian and non-Christian is going to see it, and they're going to think somebody's leaving it out. They're Xing it out. So I'm not going to use it at all myself. It would be an example of, I think, uh, Christian liberty wisely applied. Uh, bottom line, I'll close with this. The happy ending is three minutes from now. Uh, the fact that we've got new gospels bubbling up and being pushed by certain people shouldn't surprise us because Jesus warned us, our Lord Jesus, beware of the false prophets, and they can be uh, in a science lab or in a scholastic context context, you know, Elaine Peggles, not just Richard Dawkins, uh, who come to you in sheep's clothing, you know, to give you insight into history that you don't know because, you know, uh, Orthodox Christianity is actually a fake version that was foisted on us in the 4th century, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. How are we going to test, uh, say, the gospel of Judas, what it teaches to know whether we should believe it or not? You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were first. They're best. They're actually authentic. They're written by apostles or people who work with and interact with apostles, eyewitnesses. That's who you go with every time. Plus, they're inspired and they've been preserved. Uh, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirit. See whether it's from God because many false prophets. So you shouldn't be surprised we've got uh, uh, competition out there. Uh, here's what uh, I will stop on. I promise to stop three times here. Boy, I'm going to roll. This is going to be a bad year if we keep doing this, isn't it? 2017, wow. Uh, we're going to have to get softer seat cushions for some of you, right? Uh, the truth will set us free, but only if we don't oversimplify it or distort it. And, you know, I, I just look at it's, it's some of what's being preached in evangelicalism, and some of it's just plain nonsense. Uh, a lot of what uh, Olstein is saying is just craziness, but when you analyze it theologically, but a lot of it is well-meaning, but it just oversimplifies complicated things so people get a very distorted conception of God. We tell people that God can do anything. God can do anything. God can do anything. So they go to the philosophy class. Amber, you go to philosophy class. And at least Aaron Buchanan told me, of course, he's at a Christian college, but they were trying to fake him out the first day of philosophy class. Hey, you've been taught in Sunday school God can do anything, right? They go, yeah. Any Christians here? Yeah. You've been told God can do anything, right? Well, can he make a rock so big he himself can't lift it? Can he stop being God? Go, oh, my gosh, you know, there are some things God can't do. Uh, 
we had failed you if we told you God could do anything. I mean, Titus says God who cannot lie promised long ages ago he was going to send the Savior. What's one thing God can't do, Lendl? He can't lie, right? God can't do anything, okay? Omnipotence means there's no finite limit to his power. God can't lie. God can't die. God can't stop being God. God can't make a rock so big he himself can't lift it. Because number one, Trey, if it's out in outer space, it's going to be weightless, Right? But no, he's too smart to build one. But he, no, no matter how big the rock is, he can move it. So when we oversimplify things, we distort them. And then uh, the culture is coming at us full barrel. we got to know what we're doing. And it's interesting. When I say the truth will set us free, what's the context for that? Uh, most Christians wouldn't know. I'm going to assume all of you know. I'm going to give you 100. I'm going to give you 5 out of 5 on the quiz. I know you all knew that. But Jesus says that in John 8, where speaking to an antagonistic crowd in Jerusalem, uh, he presents himself as uh, the uh, 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 the uh, the light of the world, and as he spoke these things that he's the light of the world, many came to believe in him. A good many of the larger crowd believed in him. So Jesus was saying specifically to those who believe, if you'll continue in my word, you'll be disciples of mine, and you'll know the truth, and it will make you free. So we can't. Uh, teach you the truth, James and I and the other teachers, uh, in a way that will set you free, if we oversimplify or distort it. So hold us to that. And when you look at the last Gospels, it's easy to watch the National Geographic special and say, oh, there's all these extra Gospels. I've got to read all those, have an idea what Jesus was about. Don't need to. Don't worry about it. They're too late. They're lawless. Oh, my goodness. You know, anything with an X is inherently horrible. Not necessarily. It can be very benign. But since it's so easily misunderstood, don't use it. Okay, I am done. I'm going to pray now. Thank you. Lord, we thank you for each one who's here this morning. We thank you for this new year you're giving us. Uh, I mean, every Sunday we realize this is the first day of a new week you're giving us, and now in a special way, this is the first day of a new year you're giving us, and we re- realize there are no guarantees. Uh, we're so thankful that Ken uh, is here, and despite the severity of that collision, uh, you allowed him to to come through in, in pretty good shape, and we pray for a complete physical recovery for him. Uh, but let that be a reminder to us. And we, we don't need that reminder around this place because we've seen so many of our number have uh, really tragic things happen. So forgive us for thinking we're bulletproof, and I pray that you'll help us to construct a battleship of the soul that will allow us to have the stability you want us to have in the ups and downs of life, and that the downs will only make us... Uh, kind of uh, yearn for heaven that much more in a way that will make us more uh, uh, plugged in to the needs here on earth. Uh, We pray you would uh, empower us today and into this new week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.